Each week, we examine the stadium beat from every angle. With athletes like Fred Lynn. The Green Monster, they call it that for a reason. About 12 foot of it from the ground to about 12 foot up was concrete. And if you hit that, I mean, it would just tear your skin off. Joe Theismann. What a great idea this is to be able to talk about the hallowed structures that exist today. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. The reviews are in on the return of professional football to Los Angeles, and it was red carpet all the way, with nearly 90,000 fans watching the Rams return to the L.A. Memorial Coliseum. We'll relive the event with SB Nation's Joe McAtee, who shares his thoughts on the Rams' long-term challenge of remaining relevant in Tinseltown. Later, a controversy awaiting the opening of the U.S. Bank Stadium in Minneapolis. The Vikings' original cheerleaders, the Parquets, are being snubbed in the event. Former Parquet cheerleader Peril Kaplan tells the story of the bitter cold days leading the cheers at Metropolitan Stadium. And Stadiums USA's Mark Madoran says the Angels are stadium shopping again, this time closer to home. But first... The stadium's beat with Jeff Schmidt. Jeff? Well, a scoreboard was required to keep up with all of the changes in stadium naming rights deals this week. In Miami, where names change about as often as a Dolphins starting quarterback, the new name is Hard Rock Stadium. After the themed restaurant chain anteed up for $250 million for an 18-year deal. Hard Rock joins Joe Robbie Stadium, Pro Player Park, Pro Player Stadium, Dolphin Stadium, Dolphin Stadium, Landshark Stadium, Sun Life Stadium, New Miami Stadium in the long list of venue names. Kind of makes you miss the Orange Bowl. In Buffalo, adios Ralph Wilson Stadium, hello New Era Field. The New Era Cap Company, a longtime Buffalo business, Paid a reported $35 million for naming rights through 2022. New Era boss Chris Cook says that they will do their best to live up to the Ralph Wilson name. Ralph you know, has a huge legacy here, and, uh, and, we, and we know we have to be responsible, and we, we have to do the right thing, and we have to have you know, the same high standards that, that he had. And I think that that, that was you know, part, part of the reason why we wanted to do this with the Bills. For the Bills, the deal generates revenue for a franchise that has at times struggled to be competitive and has been forced to regionalize its fan base into places like Rochester and Toronto. To the NBA, where the home of the Charlotte Hornets is now known as the Spectrum Center. The company is Charter Communications, a digital brand that provides TV, internet, and voice services. It replaces the name Time Warner Cable. And back to Miami, where it's beginning to look like all stadium renovations will be complete in time for the Dolphins' preseason game September 1st against Tennessee. At the very top of the venue is a new canopy roof that is intended to shield fans from the sun. Also new in each corner of the stadium are high-definition televisions. Dolphins Senior Vice President Bill Sen talked with CBS Miami. It is truly, truly a new era. We have an iconic structure now, an iconic building. We have a great product. Our effort, our sole effort, is to try and make as good a game experience we can for our fans. New goalposts, turnstiles, and gates are being installed this week. 
Bill, that is the very latest. Thanks, Jeff. It was a special kickoff this year for football in Southern California. The return of the Rams to L.A. and a record crowd of nearly 90,000 fans packed the L.A. Coliseum, and among those who could kind of uh, enjoy the majesty of all of this and the atmosphere of football returning to L.A. is Joe McAtee, one of the many reporters for SB Nation and a particular section of it known as the Turf Show Times. That's the area which deals specifically with the Rams. Joe, I'll bet you you had an awful lot of fun with us. Tell us all about it. Yeah, I mean, it was an, it's an exciting day to bring uh, NFL football back to Los Angeles and have that kind of a kickoff on ESPN against the Dallas Cowboys, you know, with everybody in attendance to, you know, celebrate kind of a second era of Los Angeles Rams football. I think, you know, the fun part moving forward is there's not a lot of certainty about how this is going to go. You know, they're only playing in the Coliseum for three years. You got a rookie franchise quarterback who's not even the starter yet. There's so many variables and questions and the only place it's going to get answered is in Los Angeles. I think that's part of what makes it fun. I think a lot of us were interested in how the Coliseum would perform its role. What type of reaction did you find uh, to pro football returning to the Coliseum? I think it's going to take some time, and I think part of it is the fact that the Rams are going to share the Coliseum with the University of Southern California throughout the season, and so you're going to have, you know, field issues when you're playing, uh, you know, two games in close uh, time proximity to one another. You've got, you know, crowd issues, and the fact that uh, USC pretty much asked the Rams and the NFL not to have any Monday night football games because they didn't want that kind of clamor on the campus during the season. So, you know, it's a, it's only a three-year deal before 2019 season when Stan Kroenke, the owner of the Rams uh, gets to open his stadium and campus over in Inglewood. So it's not, you know, a very medium term solution. It's a short term one. But I think the fact that NFL football is back, I think, is exciting Rams fans to the degree that maybe they're willing to overlook some of those uh, criticisms. L.A. is a city. The nature of it is such. You have so many sports. You have so much going on with entertainment. All of that makes a situation which competes directly with a team's ability to hold the spotlight, if you will. Well, it's a little different. How long can the Rams continue to hold the spotlight the way that they had it for opening night? That's a great question. And I, I think, you know, one of the good things is that the team and, you know, I don't know if you saw the first episode of Hard Knocks on HBO, some of the players all the way to the top, to the owner and to local media know that if there's any, you know, extension of this kind of uh, captivation of the market, it's only going to come with winning football. If the quality of the football matches what St. Louis was privy to the last 12 years, the Rams haven't had a winning season since 2003. If that's the kind of thing that we're saying four, five, six years from now, I just don't see how it's possible that Los Angeles uh, continues to meet that kind of support. So season one is going to be an interesting marker. The Rams are going to be, you know, pressured to come out and make some kind of initial statement in terms of how they're going to captivate uh, Los Angelinos to come out to games as opposed to doing other things. What about the Coliseum as a home field advantage, temporary as it is? I've done several games out of there through the years, and it could be a mighty tough place to play, but it is big. Can this be a true home field advantage for the Rams? 
I think the big question is going to be how soon, uh, what's the right word, maybe your neutral fans or unassociated fans begin embracing the Rams as the home team. I think, you know, one interesting martyr of that is going to be when the Seattle Seahawks come to town. Seahawks head coach Pete Carroll is still a beloved figure in Los Angeles for his time, you know, with uh, Southern Cal. I don't know that, you know, there won't be a significant portion of Seahawks fans, or at least Pete Carroll fans who are, you know, by extension supporting the Seahawks, making themselves known on game day. And so I'm, you know, it's one of those factors that I don't have an answer for because we're going to have to get through a couple weeks and maybe into the second and third seasons of Los Angeles Rams football before we really know how much Los Angeles is willing to get behind the Rams and how much they're just enjoying, you know, NFL football, the product itself. You know, Los Angeles lost NFL football really because there wasn't a stadium under construction or something that's why they left there's no reason other than that i wonder if there is some leverage there that Kronke can play on the threat of the city losing pro football again i would think that would be somewhat of a mitigating factor in and maybe buy a little bit more time for the rams to get their feet firmly on the ground I think that's part of it, but I also think the fact that he's paying for his stadium uh, entirely and not requiring any public money to do so, I think that may be an overwhelming factor to boot, you know, compared to St. Louis. I mean, you just mentioned the fact that Los Angeles lost their NFL team because they didn't have a stadium. St. Louis, not only did they put a ton of public money in that they're still paying off, they were willing to put up another $500 million of public money for another stadium plan. So, you know, the precedent that's being set is really unusual in that you've got an owner who's willing to put more than $2 billion into his own campus. And then you've got this other situation in St. Louis where the city was willing to commit hundreds of millions of dollars further for another stadium. It's, it's a strange one. It's a strange situation. The circumstances don't really match up to 94, 93, when the Rams were entertaining moving to St. Louis. Now that you've set the precedent, and like you said, Kroenke's got leverage, what does Los Angeles do with it? You're already talking about the Raiders, you know, looking at Las Vegas, San Diego Chargers are dealing with some issues. The idea of relocation is not finished. Joe, you're going to have a lot of fun with this. Uh, you're going to okay. see some history made. <laughs> you're going to watch a lot of things happening for the first time. So we wish you well with it, and we suggest that everybody drop by and check out uh, the SB Nation Turf Showtimes blog and follow along. Joe, thank you. Good luck, good wishes, and have a lot of fun. Hey, Bill, thanks for having me. A pleasure. Joe McAtee is our guest. We'll be back with more of Stadiums USA right here on SB Nation Radio. you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. 
At the end of this month, the new U.S. Bank Stadium will open the home of the Minnesota Vikings, the future home, and uh, it brings back a lot of memories of Vikings glory for many, and we're going to take a different bend on this. We're going to talk about some of the cheerleaders that have been involved and an interesting story that's come up as a sidelight of this. Many years ago, cheerleading began with the Vikings from a cheerleading squad at St. Louis Park High School in suburban Minneapolis, a very talented group of young ladies, and they eventually worked into the opportunity to be the original cheerleaders for 20 years for the Minnesota Vikings. A member of that cheerleading team is with us now, Peril Kaplan, and she comes to us from Minneapolis, where she lives. Peril, it is great to visit with you. We welcome you to the program, and I understand that there has been a controversy which has arisen since apparently a number of cheerleaders from the past have been invited back for the opening of the new stadium, but the Parquettes, the original cheerleaders for the team, are not among them. I guess it's become uh, something of a news item, hasn't it? Yes, it has, Bill. Thanks very much. Uh, it's now a cause celeb here in the Twin Cities and especially amongst all of the old diehard Viking fans and mm-hmm. who remembered the Parkettes for the 20 years we spent on the field out at the old Met Stadium. And we go back to the days of the Met. We were outdoors freezing our buns off for 20 years at uh, Met Stadium. And uh, it seems like the Vikings have forgotten us or are not going to recognize us as part of the cheerleading history when they have the pregame ceremonies at the opening game in uh, in the next couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. They had a call out for a reunion of all old uh, Viking cheerleaders, and when some of our girls found out about it and tried to register, we were rejected and told that this wasn't for us. It was for cheerleaders only from 1984 to 2015. Um, we were the cheerleaders from 1964 to 1984. And apparently there is some reason why they don't feel like we were to be included in this particular ceremony honoring the Viking cheerleaders. This was a rather unusual situation in that the Parquettes, the actual cheerleading team and dance team, already had a considerable reputation before the Vikings actually approached them. Uh, This group had already cut their teeth uh, with the old Minneapolis Lakers and also even being on the Ted Mack Amateur Hour. So a lot of people already knew of this before the Vikings invited the group to be their cheerleaders. Uh, Can you fill us in on some of that? Well, yes, we were uh, really a world-famous precision dance line. We were high school girls, but, you know, you can watch the Olympics and see you don't have to be old to be very talented. It was a, a very elite group uh, of people, of girls who auditioned and tried out and practiced, and we toured the world. I myself was in London. We performed on the BBC, at the BBC. 
Um, we always performed all over on various Air Force bases and nightclubs and venues all over the world. Um, and we were known. We were famous. Going back to the Vikings, the teams that you cheered for on the sidelines were some of the greatest football teams ever assembled. This was Bud Grant's group. Uh, Fran Tarkenton was the quarterback the great majority of that time. But one thing can be said, that was an incredibly cold environment. You were outside. How in the world did you handle that with those cheerleading outfits on? You know, you bring up a, a really sensitive point. <laughs> it was the days before we ever heard about global warming, and it was cold. We danced one game that had a minus 54-degree wind chill, oh. um, and those temperatures below zero weren't uncommon. And our outfits, this was also before we had uh, technical gear for people who do outdoor sports. You know, now you can wear special gear if you're running a runner or skier, but they didn't have any of that then. Mm -hmm. So we wore nice, appropriate cheerleader skirts and sweaters, and we wore white go-go boots uh, back in the day. Mm -hmm. And in order to keep warm, we had to improvise, and we used a lot of plastic. So in particular, we used to wear uh, plastic baggies in our inside of our boots over our socks to try and keep our feet warm. And then the girls would also use the plastic um, that you get from the cleaners over your clothes. We would put those on underneath our sweaters to try and keep us ourselves warm. A mm -hmm. uh, lot of hot chocolate. The fans used to actually come down and pass us hot chocolate through the fence mm -hmm. and try and hand us hot chocolate to help keep us warm. I would have to think that that field was as hard as bricks. When you were jumping up and down, there wasn't a whole lot of give there. I can't believe well, there was. Can you imagine doing jump splits on the ice oh. and trying not to hurt yourself? Or oh. um, being on the sidelines, you know, is dangerous in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there are those plays that don't are, are unpredictable. I guess we had one once when Chuck Foreman was coming down the sideline and he got pushed out of bounds uh, right over a cheerleader who was there. Mm. Um, she's got a pretty good gash on her leg. She wears her scar as a badge of honor from being run over by Chuck Foreman. You have talked, I assume, with Vikings officials related to this problem. What have they indicated to you as a reason why the Parkettes are not being included in the grand opening of the new stadium? Well, we were told that this didn't include us. It only included cheerleaders from 1984 to the present. Mm -hmm. And she also said that we weren't the official Viking cheerleaders. We were just the parkettes. And that line was sort of, you know, very dismissive and hurtful to that we were just the parkettes. Since that time, um, you know, the Minneapolis Star Tribune broke this story uh, a week ago, and they went to the Vikings and asked for a statement. And the Viking statement basically was that no offense intended to the Parkettes that they would honor us on another occasion, which is, you know, 
pretty dismissive and patronizing. Well, it's pretty clear it's a hot potato and nobody wants to touch it. And mm-hmm. uh, they've already done some damage. You know, they'll need a little damage control on this. I don't know how they'll fix it, but it's now up to them to fix it. So hopefully when the time does come, when the parkettes are honored, uh, that it will be done so in a very special and memorable way. You certainly have earned that. A lot of people will remember uh, this incredible group of ladies and what they have done. We wish you well and continued success. Well, thanks, Bill. I appreciate it. And uh, nice hearing from you. It's a pleasure to visit with you also. Harold Kaplan, a member of the Parkettes. What a story. Now, Mark Madoran is standing by. We're going to talk shop. That's when we return right here on SB Nation Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit FanEssentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit FanEssentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. All right, get that helmet strapped on. Now it's time to talk shop once again. And in steps Mark Madoran, president and creator of the Stadiums USA website. He's ready to go. We remind you, Stadiums USA is the nation's preeminent source for stadium information. Check it out at stadiumsusa.com. And while you're at it, you can listen to podcasts of Stadiums USA Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network and subscribe. Subscribe to us on iTunes and, of course, listen each week right here on SB Nation Radio. Follow us on Twitter. The handle is at Stadiums USA, and you can also check us out on Facebook. That's all the bases we have them covered. Let's get out of here, Mark. We learned this week that the architecture firm hired to design a new ballpark for the Texas Rangers was first hired to look into a massive canopy that would have covered the current ballpark, Globe Life Park, but the more affordable option was never pursued. What's the story on this? That's interesting. Before looking into a new ballpark, the Rangers had an idea to retrofit the existing Globe Life Park with a massive sunshade structure, Mm -hmm. uh, which would have shaded 75% of the stadium seats, but would have left the seats closest to the field, which are also the most expensive ones, unprotected. The cost for this giant metal sunshade was around $80 million dollars which is about $900 million less than the $1 billion it'll cost to build something brand new from the ground up, that retractable roof stadium they'll probably go ahead with. The other problem with the canopy was the logistics. Construction of the giant sunshade may have taken something around three years and been difficult to complete during the baseball season. So that was a problem as well. Mm. Uh, the new stadium, of course, has yet to be approved by the city of Arlington voters. If approved... They're on the hook for half of the billion-dollar price tag. The city plans to take care of that through an increase in the hotel and car rental taxes. The architectural firm Populous 
uh, has designed stadium preliminaries. They're the ones that looked into the sunshade mm. problem. They also designed some preliminaries on a new stadium, but no official architectural contract has yet been awarded. So Populous is probably going to be in for that when the time comes. Yeah, indeed. Mark, last year we talked about the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim pursuing a new ballpark in Tustin. You remember that? It's about eight or nine miles from their current park and, of course, a Southern California suburb. It appears this idea is no longer viable. What happened and what's next for the Angels? Well, with the Tustin deal off the table, the Angels are back to talking with the city of Anaheim officials about Angel Stadium renovations and included that a long-term lease extension. The Tustin deal developer, after extensive research, uh, tried to make the numbers work, but he couldn't make it work for the three parties involved, which would have been the Angels, of course, the city of Tustin, mm-hmm. and the developer themselves. Uh, the Angels' current lease expires in 2029, although there is an opt-out provision until 2019. By the way, uh, the Angel Stadium and the Dodger Stadium are the third and fourth oldest stadiums in the majors. It's uh, interesting. Fenway and Wrigley are two oldest, then L.A.'s other two stadiums come in third and fourth. Hmm. The political landscape actually is changing in Anaheim somewhat. The city council will expand from five to seven members after this coming November's election. So the city is trying to get a deal done before that happens because it's a little easier to get three people to nod their heads instead of four people. A local attorney, by the way, Wiley Aitlin, has been hired to lead the negotiations for the city of Anaheim. And they're looking to a lease extension somewhere about 2050. So it'd be a a very long-term deal. Mark, if we go down the coast a little bit, we will find another interesting November ballot issue, which definitely is oriented towards stadiums. And that, of course, is the San Diego Chargers issue regarding a new proposed stadium there. And now the Chargers have unveiled a new advertising campaign emphasizing who will actually pay for a new stadium if voters approve the measure in November. What's the story on this? Well, the Chargers are going all out to get their message to San Diego voters about the upcoming vote for a new stadium. The advertising campaign is laying out the financing for the new venue so people have a really good idea how it works. Mm -hmm. What the campaign says is San Diego citizens won't pay new taxes because this involves a hotel tax that's being increased. So what they're saying in the video is, We don't mind if the hotel tax goes up. Who's paying the hotel tax? (laughs) It's the fans of the Raiders, the Broncos, and the Patriots. That's who's paying for that, not people that live in San Diego. The new campaign is an ingenious attempt to get support from citizens who don't favor tax increases. The hotel tax is expected to generate more than enough income to pay for the bond payments for the $1.15 billion the city will give for the project. The additional $650 million that it'll take to build the stadium will come from the Chargers themselves. Former Charger quarterback Dan Fouts has been enlisted as the spokesperson for the campaign video. So that'll be interesting to look at. The vote comes in November. Now, under California law, there is one problem. They need a two-thirds majority, as we understand at this point, to get this done. Wow. And they're really thinking that's going to be a tough nut to crack. 
Um, that number may be a Hail Mary pass. It's yeah. <laughs> I have to wait and see. Um, they are trying to challenge the law to get it back to a simple majority. But at this point, it appears like any tax change legislation does require what's called a supermajority of two-thirds. So mm. We'll see if Dan Fouts can connect on this one. Yeah, really. It's a, going to be a tough thing to do, especially in San Diego, which is a relatively conservative area of the state. Mark, it's been a busy week as far as stadium and arena naming rights deals are concerned. Fill us in. Well, yeah, it has been a busy week. Uh, it seems like everybody announced it this week. The Miami Dolphins have said they have sold the naming rights again. This is their eighth name change. <laughs> They're now the Hard Rock Stadium. And so that's the stadium that will go into place when the Dolphins open the season just a few weeks from now. Mm. The Buffalo Bills are no longer the Ralph Wilson Stadium occupants. It belongs to the New Era Cap Company. The former uh, owner has been uh, placed in reserves. The new name goes on the stadium uh, in the coming weeks. The uh, old name of the former owner, Ralph Wilson, has been on the stadium since 1999. As a note, the new era cap company has been a Buffalo company since 1920. Wow. The Charlotte Hornets also are changing the name. Time Warner Cable is gone, and the new arena is called the Spectrum Arena. So there are three naming rights deals. We're looking to put our name, Stadiums USA, on something very, very soon. We're thinking the local Little League Park is probably about what we have a budget for. Yeah. <laughs> and Spectrum, of course, is part of the charter cable operation. They took over uh, that part of it in that area, as I understand it. And so uh, that is an actual product of charter cable. So that's how they'll market it. And Mark, each week we take a look back at some significant dates in stadium history. What do you have for us this time around? This week in 1909, and of course you remember this, the Indianapolis <laughs> 500 racetrack will open. I was waving the flag on the original race. I'll bet you were. You and 17 people. Uh, in 1927, this player becomes the first to hit a ball completely out of the old Chicago Comiskey Park. And I'm sure we remember who it was. It wasn't a White Sox player. <laughs> yeah, I believe he's known for hitting an awful lot of home runs, as I recall. He did. Uh, Babe Ruth uh, yeah. hit one out of the ballpark and then went across the street and uh, had a hot dog and a beer. <laughs> this week in 1945, it was the intersection of stadiums and social issues as scheduled demonstrations at the Polo Grounds and Ebbets Field aimed at ending segregation in baseball were canceled. In 1949, more than 78,000 watched as the Indians and the White Sox battled at old Cleveland Municipal Stadium. The mistake by the lake. So just a few items from this state in stadium history. All right, Mark. Sounds good. Have a good week, a good weekend. We will see you next week. Enjoy the summer at Coors Field in Denver. There, yeah. Very well spoken, Mark. That's our program for this week. Bill Hazen saying thanks for being with us and hope you enjoyed the show. We invite you back next week. Now stay tuned because we have a full day of sports coverage ahead right here on SB Nation Radio.